Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Good to see you. The King is coming, isn't he? Let's dive into this a little bit more and see what we can learn about it today and how we're to respond to that. We're in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, We started this series about three, four weeks ago, something like that, The Return of the King, looking at various texts throughout the Scripture and what they have to teach us about that moment and and about how we can be ready for it. And we've we've sort of treated this like a zero-entry pool, right? We, We didn't dive in the deep end. We just sort of tested the waters. We started with some direct words from Jesus about His coming again, some really elementary, rudimentary principles for that. Uh, some real short, straight, kind of to-the-point predictions from the pastoral epistles and from the revelation of John. In other words, thus to date, we've been covering, for the most part, the easy parts of this. Surveyed the meaning last week about behind this phrase, the day of the Lord, how do you prepare for it? Challenging us that that day is coming, we better be ready for it. And so today we're going to ask another question, what's next? What's next? I've spent several weeks telling you we can't know when because even Jesus doesn't know when. The apostles didn't know when, so we needn't be arrogant enough to think we can set a date and somehow be right. But we can legitimately ask, well, what comes next? And the way we know that is because those are the questions the apostles, the original apostles, the disciples of Jesus, they asked those questions, and Jesus sought to answer those questions for them in this text. And so we're going to ask that. How's this going to happen? How's it going to go down? What's the order of events? Could it happen at any moment? Are there some things on the world scene that that still need to transpire before we see Jesus? And I just want you to keep in mind, we've spoken a lot over the last few weeks about the fact that at Covenant, we have closed-handed and open-handed issues, right? So in here is substitutionary atonement, death of Jesus, blood of Jesus, repentance of sin, uh, belief in Christ, deity of Christ, bodily resurrection, all those things. Over here are some things we can agree to disagree on, and this is one of those areas where there's an open-handed place for followers of Jesus, because there's a lot of men and women, a lot of scholars and pastors and people that love Jesus all down through the ages who've looked at this issue, and they've tried to seek as best as they can to understand his word, and sometimes they come to differing understandings. And so what I'm going to do this morning is just give you my best understanding of this, um, of what I think is going to take place based on Jesus' words here, up against the vast array of a few other opinions that are out there. And we're in Matthew 24 because I think, other than the revelation of John, this is probably the best place for us to go. Because aside from that other piece of literature, there's no more important section of Scripture that deals with the second coming of Jesus than the one that we're looking at today. And I want us to understand that well. And I want us to begin with understanding the context of Jesus' instruction, okay? So let's think about this for a minute. It's written by Matthew, a Jew who was a former tax collector, who became one of the early disciples, and what Matthew thought mattered, and what Matthew wrote mattered, and the way Matthew organizes it matters, because Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, All right, you with me so far? Can everybody amen that? All Scripture is inspired of God. Peter tells us men spoke by the Holy Spirit from 
God. And so what you have here is a very Trinitarian thing where the Father sends the Holy Spirit to the biblical writer who is writing using his own personality, his own chosen literary genre and personality and other kinds of things, but it's being expressed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means it's being expressed without any error. It's being expressed without any mistakes. It's being expressed in the purest form that one human being can communicate to another, which is what happens when the Holy Spirit inspires you. And in this particular case, God the Father has sent God the Holy Spirit to inspire Matthew both to write these words and to organize these words that Matthew himself heard from the lips of God the Son. You following me so far? Okay, here's my big idea. It's not just the words that are inspired. It is the way they are organized by the Holy Spirit-inspired author. And so it, it becomes important then to understand context. And what we need to understand is Jesus, at the end of this message, he's preaching something called the Olivet Discourse. It's called that quite simply because he's standing on the Mount of Olives. at the east, It's a ridge east of and adjacent to Jerusalem's old city. Moreover, this, is, this sermon is the last of five, and so I want you to see before we dive into the text how all of these fit together, how Matthew, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has appropriated these, and I think we'll understand these words a lot better if we'll jump up and fly at about a mid-range altitude over all five of them first, okay? So you ready to roll? May I say one more time? You ready to roll? All right, here we go. Just want to make sure you're awake. It starts with the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5 through 7. We talked about the first half of that last fall in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the values of the kingdom of God. You are approved of by God if these values form the core of your identity. And those values are going to produce behavior, which is what the second part of that message is about. All that stuff about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek, and every one of us with any lick of sense knows we can't do unless we've been converted, right? We just can't behave that way because those are the values of the kingdom. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Right after that, about five chapters later, Matthew 10, comes the mission discourse. And this is the first time he's sending the 12 out on their own, and he's briefing them. So think about a military commander in front of a platoon of soldiers, trying to rile them up and get them motivated, and being very honest with them about what's coming. I think about that speech that uh, Hal Moore gave uh, before the soldiers he took in the movie We Were Soldiers. And some of you saw that movie and, and how motivating that was, but also just how real it was. Guys, we're going up against a, a tough and determined enemy, and here's what you're going to face, I think about President Whitmore. Y'all remember President Whitmore, right? From Independence Day. We will not go quietly into the night. I know it was a fake battle and fake aliens. But that was still a really cool speech, right? And so you want to think about that in, in those terms that you've got someone sending them out saying, these are the things you're going to be facing, which deals not just with the values and the behavior of people who walk in the kingdom, but the cost involved. If you're going to be a kingdom person, there's a cost to that. Uh, you're going to have to be willing to give up some things in order to follow Jesus. Then comes the parabolic discourse, Matthew chapter 13. This is a collection of parables. 
that further describes the kingdom of God. You've got a sower sowing seeds. You've got that same farmer plucking up weeds and separating the good from the bad. You've got a mustard seed parable in there that talks about the potential power that comes from working in the kingdom. You have stories about hidden treasure and the pearl of great price that are tucked in there to speak about the, the overwhelming wealth of the kingdom. It's so great and it's so mighty. It's worth losing everything if you have to in order to get this. And then comes number four, the ecclesiastical discourse. Chapter 18 gives us the distinction, but also the relationship of the church, the body of Christ, to the kingdom of God. And it's here where we hear about lost sheep and unforgiving servant parables and instruction on how we, as the body of Christ, are to extend that kingdom. There is no extension of the kingdom without a church, but the church cannot survive unless it seeks first the kingdom. What's that look like? Well, how do we restore each other when we're fallen in sin? How do we treat each other? How do we view reconciliation among each other? How do we pursue unity for the sake of the kingdom of God? And it's on the foundation of all of that that we find the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, which speaks not of the values or the behavior or the power or the value of the kingdom, but the eventual, physical, literal, overwhelming consummation of that kingdom that is one day coming in all of its glory. This is what comes in the end. For those that inherently possess these values that behave these ways. I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity like I have to go to an American embassy. When you're in a foreign country, sometimes you go there because you're there on some sort of diplomatic kind of, kind of mission and you're there to meet with some of your own folks as well. Sometimes you go to an embassy because you got sick and you need evacuation. Sometimes you go to the embassy because you broke a law that you didn't know was a law and you need some maybe legal help. You need uh, an ambassador's office to kind of intervene for you. I've never done that. Just one of you know that. But sometimes that, that does happen. And it happens to good people sometimes. Here's one of the things I've learned about an American embassy. No matter where it's located, it could be in Belize, it could be in Beijing, it could be in Hanoi, it, it could be in Istanbul, it could be in any country in the world. But when I step across the threshold onto the property, okay, I don't have to go into the building. There's usually a gate of some sort, depending on the, which country it is and what the status of our relationship with them might be. There may be varied degrees of security. But when I step across the line from the outer part of the city into and onto the grounds of that embassy, from a diplomatic standpoint, I am standing on American soil. Every bit as much as I am while I'm standing right here in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And that carries some benefits, doesn't it? I'm standing on American soil. I look up and I see the Marines in those dress blues and they open the doors for me and I feel really important. You walk in, you meet an ambassador, you meet an ambassador's staff, you start talking, you hear English, more English than perhaps you've heard uh, in several days and it just feels good because it, 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 just, it, it just feels familiar, right? When it's familiar, it feels good to you. I, I, I am protected by American law. I'm surrounded by all of those things. I enjoy the same American rights, but at the same time, all of us in that building and on that property have to recognize everything around us is not American, is it? It belongs to the country that's hosting us. Now, that's very different, okay? I enjoy visits to embassies, but you know what I enjoy even more? Coming home. I've been on five continents. God has created a phenomenally diverse world filled with beautiful things. I love going to those other cultures, but I love coming home too. I just do. 
And I have entered the United States through Miami, Houston, Chicago, New York, Newark Airport. I love this country so much, I'll even come home through Jersey. I, I will. And, and so I, I will do it. And when I cross that threshold, you know what I realize has happened? I'm now in the presence of something that that embassy back on foreign soil could only emulate in a very limited manner. I don't want you to think about that, that this morning because that's us. That's us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so the church, as the agent of the kingdom in this age and at this time, we gather together, we push the crown rights of Jesus, we recognize each other, but we also recognize that around us is not the same territory, and sometimes it's not even friendly territory, and we got to be okay with that because Jesus told us it would be this way. We are surrounded by foreign soil, the kingdoms of this world. And so if you have felt, wow, things are changing, I don't know if I'm comfortable here. You were never supposed to be comfortable here, nor was I. This was never supposed to be something we considered home. We are in an outpost. We, even gathered here in this moment, are in an embassy. And this final message of Jesus reminds us that a day is coming when we are going home. And we will experience what we could only experience in a limited way in this embassy that we now inhabit. And at the end of the age, we're told even more than that, home is coming to us. I talked about that last week a little bit. Malachi speaks about healing in the wings of the sun. And occasionally we lay hands on people and we see them miraculously healed and that's a beautiful thing. We believe God does that. But we don't believe that's the ultimate final destination because eventually, even if you get healed, you're going to die. Right? There's nobody that's been healed that's still alive from 200 years ago. With the exception of one person in all of human history, death is undefeated. Right? We know this. And so even in that moment when we're all rejoicing and giving God the glory and testifying to the to puzzled doctors about what happened, we understand that's just a very limited picture of when home comes to us. You know, there won't be any more healing when home comes to us because there won't need to be. There won't need to be. And that's the question, okay? We will see the full manifestation of the kingdom of God in all its glory. So you'll be comforted to know that the disciples have the same question you and I have in reaction to this. When? Right? Look at verse 3. This is the same question they were asking. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is about to answer that question for them and for us. And he describes four broad categories of events here. In verses 4 to 8, he speaks of global unrest. So when you get up in the morning and you read the paper and there's a war here and a famine here and a pandemic there and there's this and there's that, this should not surprise you. You do not live in heaven. You live on earth. Global unrest, wars, racial tension. That's what he means when he says nation will rise against nation. The Greek term there is ethnos. We get our same word ethnic from that. 
And that's what it speaks about. People finding their identity in their melanin count rather than in their position in Christ. And that, that causes all kinds of tension. And sometimes there's a whole history behind that that we get so wound up as a culture in it, we don't know exactly how to untie those knots. Famines, earthquakes, natural disasters. Right on the heels of that is another broad category, that of Christian persecution. In verse 9, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. If you don't believe that's happening today, you didn't pick up the paper even just this morning, and you are absolutely clueless about what's happening in Afghanistan, even as I speak to you. On the heels of persecution will be apostasy and lawlessness. Verse 7, then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. There will be, there, there will be division sent into the body in order to incite the body to divide itself against each other. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Here, here's the good news, though. This, this fourth broad category there will be faithfulness and there will be proclamation. The one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So when will these things happen? Jesus says, here's what's going to happen first. And then the end. He then goes on to describe some harsh conditions, false prophecies. It's a pretty dark world. Whatever you think you've been made to go through, if you come in here depressed today or anxious or whatever because of world events or national events or even what's even going on in your own soul and you're wondering, is there something wrong with me? No, you're just simply existing in the world that Jesus told us would exist. That's what's happening. It's a dark world, but it is followed by this. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here's to summarize. I think this is pretty plain. The world will go through a period of great tribulation. That tribulation will be concurrent with the rapid expanse of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And after all of that's been completed, Jesus will return. That, that's the plainest reading I can give you to these words. And, and I prefer the plain reading. Uh, Alistair Begg does as well. I, I tell you all the time, you need to stay away from this preacher or that preacher. On occasion, I ought to tell, tell you about somebody you ought to put in your podcast list. One of those is Dr. Alistair Begg, Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. He's the one who says this, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. That's pretty simple, Right? And we can argue and debate about some of the other stuff and the timing of all of this, but this seems pretty plain. The question then is, are these things yet to happen or have they already happened? Here's where followers of Jesus have come to some different conclusions, and that's okay. These descriptions are obviously things that were in the future relative to Jesus and his disciples, but are they, number one, still in our future are they number two in our past already, or number three, some combination of the two? We have seen cycles of this, warfare and all of those things. Revelation chapter 6 speaks about the four horsemen. You've got false teaching, you've got war, you've got famine, and you've got death. You think that's a one-time deal, or do you think that's, that, that's a, a description of cycles that repeat themselves throughout history? 
It pops up over here, and then it pops up over there. Then it pops up yet again over here. That, that really is, is the crux of this debate. It's another way of asking this question. Is there anything we need to be waiting on from where we're at right now, August of 2021, is there anything in, chronologically in between you and me and the second coming of Jesus? Anything. That's what we're going to try to answer today. And as you answer that, you have to do so with a, a degree of humility. Let me appoint you again to verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And I will just say again, if Jesus didn't know, the disciples couldn't know, if they stand at this moment in history with the Son of God right there in front of them and they can't access it, we got to be pretty doggone arrogant to think 2,000 years separation in history, we can somehow unlock this code. And really, that's not the point anyway. So the first half of this sermon concludes with verse 35, and the conclusion is nobody knows. Don't you love those long answers that end with, I don't know? I, I've joked with people before, like, mine is the only line of work where I can perpetually say, I don't know, and still get paid. It's, it's kind of a fringe benefit, really. Like, you take your car to the mechanic, and he keeps it for two weeks, and you say, what's wrong with it? And he says, I don't know. That'll be $900. You're not paying that guy, right? You, you got to fix the problem. I'm the only guy. I don't know. Well, that's okay, pastor. That's all right. I'll, I'll take that fringe benefit. I'll take it. But Jesus tells her, we don't know, and that's, that's tough, right? But we're a generation that hates uncertainty. We want to figure things out. This is why escape rooms are so popular. We want to solve the puzzle. We want to think we've got knowledge that nobody else has, which, by the way, is an ancient heresy. It's called Gnosticism. Look it up. It ain't a thousand miles with them being Christian. It's not. We like to predict dates. We like to string things together. We like to pull from popular culture figures, whether they're political leaders or bankers or whatever, and, and put them together in some eschatological timeline like some detective looking for clues to correlate. And Jesus reminds us, while we're doing that, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's things God's revealed about himself to us and to the world. There's other things he's kept to himself. Don't treat the word of God like little orphan Annie's secret decoder pen. That's not what it's there for. It is not a puzzle to be solved. It is a message to be received. But here's the good news. There are some things we can know. So let's talk about that together. Five facts that Jesus tells us about the end of the age and about the sign of the Son of Man that we find here in Matthew 24. Number one, it will be obvious. So if you're asking questions, is this, is it that, is it that? Likely it's not, no. Why? Well, let's let Jesus answer that question for us in verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west... Some of y'all saw that Friday night, didn't you, with that big storm that came through? Starts in the east, goes, you got, you got lightning that covers the full spectrum of your vision, covering the sky. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, you can't miss it. There's no doubt. Is that him? Yeah. Nobody's going to ask that question. Right? Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So let me point out the obvious about the obvious. Let's let the scriptures point it out. Lightning flashes again, that's, that's, that's huge. You notice that to the extent that some of us ran for cover Friday night. 
because that was pretty intimidating. In the same breath, a flock of vultures. When you see those circling, you know something bad's happened. Right around here, what do we normally say? Somebody else has hit a deer. All right, we hope at least that that's, what, that's what's going on. You see those vultures, sir, there's no mistaking what that means, that something's happened. It's that obvious. But then as if that's not enough, he continues in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, is he speaking literally here? Probably not. Okay. In fact, this sounds an awful lot like apocalypse which is a genre of Jewish literature that flourished starting around 200 B.C. until well into the first century. We have two books that are predominantly apocalyptic in our Bible, Daniel in our Old Testament, Revelation in the New, along with apocalyptic references that you'll see popping up occasionally in, in literature like Matthew. And so I take this as apocalypse. But even if I'm wrong and it's literal, either way, we're going to notice this, right? This is Jesus' point. In fact, here's another way to think of this. Not as our sun literally going dark, but instead the blinding appearance of the Lord Jesus being so powerful and so overwhelming that every other light governing body in the universe seems as though it's been sucked into a black hole. You're going to notice that when it happens. You're going to notice it. You can't help but see it. You can't help but Hear it. Look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. That sounds eerily like 1 Thessalonians 4, doesn't it? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. You start to see these, these correlations. And so imagine an experience in which every one of your senses, your sight, your smell, your touch, your taste, your hearing, they're not just engaged in an unavoidable way. They are overwhelmed all at the same time. I mean, when that happens and you don't have a seizure as a result of it, you will know what this is, right? That will be our experience when Jesus splits the sky. I get there's a lot of unanswered questions around the return of Jesus, a lot of speculation around the timing events, identity of the various players involved. But what I know is this, when he does come back, any question that is warranted is going to get an answer. And any question that is not warranted will be forgotten. You won't even, it will not even be on your mind at that point because his return will be that obvious. And secondly, it will be awesome. Look at verse 29. Then will appear in heaven, the sign of the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, don't skip past that phrase, son of man. It occurs six times in chapter 24 alone within the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the title Jesus chooses most often for himself. And if you don't slow down long enough, you're just going to think it's a mile marker rather than a directional sign. I don't know why. Slow down a little bit because otherwise your natural assumption is going to be Jesus is just speaking about his humanity. But this frequent reference to this title, it's one of the reasons the religious leaders of his day got so ticked at him because they recognized what it meant. It is a nod back to another piece of apocalypse that we find in Daniel 7. Look at these passages beginning in verse 13. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's awesome. That's awesome. The Oxford Dictionary defines awesome as extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. You might substitute it with words like breathtaking, amazing, stunning, astounding, astonishing, something that leaves you speechless. Any of those words is appropriate when you're describing this event that Scripture predicts is in our collective future. And, and I, I went through all of that because sometimes the word awesome kind of gets worn slick. I'm a Gen Xer. And we're the ones who are guilty of that. So you can blame us. If you were born between 1965 and 1978, it's your fault that people don't understand how important this word awesome is because we are the Jeff Spicoli generation. It's just like, it's awesome, right? We say that about everything. The date we had the night before, the new car we got, uh, the experience on my senior cruise. It was awesome. And, and somehow it's just lost its meaning to the extent that we Gen Xers produce children who went to the Lego movie and now learn everything is awesome, right? So it's like, we, let's, let's grab this word. Now, I, I get that's how language works. It changes over time. But I, I don't want that reality to cause you to miss the point. When Jesus returns, his power and glory will be so obvious as to be undeniable by the worst cynic a deafening trumpet blast, angels gathering his, his elect to unite suddenly between the first and the third heavens, one end of the sky to the other. There will be nowhere on earth that this is not clearly seen and in which it will not be displayed in such overwhelming power that it elicits mourning and wailing on the part of those who have rejected him and the shakings of the heaven and the earth. Brothers and sisters, there never has all the miracles of God you see in the Old Testament, everything we saw through the, the book of Acts and the apostles and everything that's happened through church history, we can say with confidence, there still never has been and there never will be after it happens anything like the coming of Jesus. Nothing. It's going to be awesome. It's, it, it's going to be awesome. And it's also going to be unexpected. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This part scares me, guys. And I'm not talking about for the world. I'm not talking about for whatever group you're thinking about. I'm talking about for the people in this room right now. And I'll tell you why as we move through this together. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here's what you need to know about the days of Noah. There was one man and his family who, by the grace of God, were living with a sense of urgency. Coming judgment. Everybody else living like life's going to continue, unabated. As if there's no going, not, not going to be any ultimate balancing of the books of justice. Noah's slaving away, building some water vessel nobody had ever seen before. Everybody else is partying, enjoying themselves. And once Noah and his family were shut up inside the ark, 
judgment came suddenly. There was no time to prepare for it. And Jesus says, my coming is going to be exactly like that, with one difference. There's no indication, as far as we know, in Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, that these wicked people were given any warning. But for 2,000 years, Jesus' words have reminded you and me over and over and over and over, it's coming. It's coming. Judgment is coming. It's coming. Look at verse 40. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, if you've grown up in a particular faith tradition, um, certain kinds of traditions have, have, have had this kind of understanding of what Jesus is teaching here, a, a rapture that happens prior to a period of tribulation, and then there's a second coming. And so you, you may have been some, one of those folks that grew up in a tradition that was, was taught that this passage is, number one, simply another variation on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and secondly, that 1 Thessalonians 4 occurs right at the beginning of everything, and tribulation comes after that. Is that the case? Or could, could it be that the incongruency of the grammar between this passage and that one means we should understand this passage differently? I'll come back to that in a minute. You're welcome. Here's the obvious. These are typical first century activities that Jesus is describing. Okay? It's like eating and drinking, like, like going deer hunting, like hopping on your motorcycle and taking a ride, riding your bicycle on the CNO Canal, walking your dogs down German Street, crap you do every day of your life with such regularity you could perform them in your sleep. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Just like in Noah's time. It's just another day at the office for you. And in the middle of those kinds of activities, one will be taken and the other left. A sudden separation. Remember what Malachi taught us last week? You see it here again. A separation is coming. After which you're going to look around and discover that you have family, husband, wife, children, parents, co-workers, friends, now on the other side of a great chasm, one group to be received into eternal life and the other left for the wrath of God. And none of us knows when that moment's coming. We don't know. We don't know. Verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, like you, you don't, if you know a thief's coming at 2.13 a.m., in the morning, you know, that's the night you leave the gun outside the safe, right? It, it just saves you the extra eight seconds to have to get in there. If you know it's coming, you know what Jesus is saying here? You don't have eight seconds. You, you don't have that long. You don't have that long. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, I'm, the, here's where I'll level with you. You don't have to agree with your pastors, totally fine. Uh, some of the elders don't agree with me. Sometimes I don't agree with them. Like I said, open-handed, not a closed-handed issue here. Uh, some people believe this describes the rapture, after which there's seven years of tribulation. After that, Jesus returns. So, in effect, there's two comings, right? There's one for his church and one with his church is the way that John Wolver, a dispensational premillennial scholar, would describe it. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe that. And I'll tell you why. It's because of the text we've just read. I think the plainest reading of Jesus' words 
is that the church is never, under any circumstances, promised deliverance from the tribulation. So, pastor, does that mean we're waiting on another seven years? No, I don't believe that either. You know, what, what are you talking about? Again, you got to remember what kind of literature we're talking about here. Seven sometimes means seven. Sometimes seven is symbolic. And when seven is used symbolically in every place in Scripture, and remember, it ain't what I think or what you think. It is what the Holy Spirit-inspired author intended to say. You, you, you follow me? So it, it's not, we, we can disagree, and that's fine, but, but let's not be so insistent, well, well that's just what I believe. What, what you believe is irrelevant. What I believe is irrelevant. What matters is what did the author intend to say? And sometimes because we have fallen minds, because we're limited by space and time and language and other things, we, we can't always see all of that clearly. We've got to be okay with that. But I think the plainest reading of Jesus' words here is that we're not promised it. But I also think that seven years is, is it's, a, it's a number of completion. It's a number of wholeness. It's like when this is all said and done, when everything is finally complete over a long period of time. In other words, I think Matthew is using seven here the same way my daughter uses five. When she says, come pray with me, and I go, okay, but I got something I'm doing in my home study, or maybe I'm five minutes away from the end of something I'm watching on Netflix or whatever, and I'll be up there in a minute, baby. And I get up there, and she rolls her eyes because she's 12, and apparently the eye roll kicks in around 11 and a half. And she says, you took five years to get up here. Right? Well, she doesn't mean that literally. What's she mean? It means I took a long time. That took a long time. Now, you may think, but we're not experiencing tribulation. In fact, Pastor, if I remember correctly, you told us three weeks ago to stop whining and calling what we've experienced over the last 18 months persecution. Yeah, I did say that. And yeah, you should stop whining. You're like, well, then where, is it? where are you? And this is where some global awareness together with our understanding of the Scripture, will help us be better disciples of Jesus. Maybe it's not happening here. But many of our brothers and sisters, this is just another day at the office. I'll, I'll go into this in more detail in later weeks. For now, I will tell you that when I have been some places around the world, and I've trained pastors, I remember in, in Southeast India training a group of about 60 Indian pastors about 10 years ago this year, there was a pastor there. He'd been saved out of Hinduism. His name was Ambrose, named after one of the, one of the fathers of the early church. And, and he had left under threat from fundamentalist Hindus there. They said, if you come back to this village, we're going to kill you. We're going to end your life. Because if we end your life, it will end your church. And I remember laying hands on that man. Six foot four, giant of a guy. Gentle giant. I belong to Jesus. I'm going back. Whatever they do, they do. But I have to be faithful to the Lord. Guys, this happens all over the world. And it's never ceased. There's never been a time where there were, was not significant persecution of people. Again, pick up your paper, go to your news app today, and read about Afghanistan and what our brothers and sisters are, God forbid, but possibly about to face. This is what I mean by that. This is my point. When you go to those places in the world and you talk about a future tribulation and you talk about how the church is going to escape that, 
some of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in the Asian subcontinent and in certain parts of the African continent are going to look at you like you've got two heads. And maybe they should. I'm not telling you you're wrong, although I do think you are. But we can agree to disagree. I'm not, I'm not telling you you have to agree with your pastor. I'm giving you some food for thought here with a global perspective. For now, I want to stick with the practical. And, I, and it, based on these assumptions that I've described for you, I believe Jesus could return at any moment. That, that's what I believe. And I think that means for Christians, even business as usual, I'm not telling you not to go on vacation. I'm not telling you not to go to the vineyard. I'm not telling you not to go fishing. I'm, not, I'm just saying even your business as usual should be anything but usual. Some people who populate churches every single week live lives that are indistinguishable in any way from the world. you got the same values. You you won't turn the other cheek. You you won't love your enemies. It's just not going to happen. You you, you carry the the same behaviors. You might even be a really good person. I'm not talking about you smoking weed every night and you're cheating on your wife and you're beating people up at work or whatever. I mean, you're good, but your vow, what you prioritize, how you react to situations, what you freak out about and light your hair on fire about, if none of those things bear the urgency of the kingdom and the anticipation of what we've just seen in colorful description that's coming, if you are eating and drinking and living just like everybody else, you might not be ready. And that frightens me because I believe that it could happen at any moment. Are you ready? Here's the good news. Jesus can make you ready. You say, how do you, how do you know that? Well, interestingly enough, several reasons, but for the purposes of this text, it's, it's where he happens to be standing at this moment. He gives a sermon, Standing on the Mount of Olives. That hill bears that title because of the olive groves that surround it and connect to its base. And right at the bottom of one side of the Mount of Olives is an olive grove called Gethsemane. Most likely, best I can tell, mere days after he utters these words, he's going to return to the bottom of that mountain with a heart full of sorrow, anxiety, fear of the coming wrath of God that he knows he must bear for the sins of the world. And he will say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then he will go to the cross and pay the penalty for sin. The biggest temptation in American evangelicalism right now is exchanging a theology of the cross for a theology of glory. A theology of glory tells you it's bad to be weak, it's bad to be defeated, it's bad to lose, it's bad to... Jesus, look look at this. He will bear the penalty for your sins and mine. He will allow himself. This isn't weakness. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own. Do not exchange the birthright embodied in the theology of the cross for the pottage 
that is a theology of glory. You don't get any glory, and I don't either. That goes to one. But that one went to the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins, for my sins, and he did it because Jesus doesn't desire to bring his kingdom merely to bring his kingdom. He wants you to be ready when he arrives because he wants you to be part of it. And I do too. Let's bow together. Lord, as we begin to, to dive deeper into what you have revealed about things around the end, Lord, give us a sense of urgency. Forgive us where we have not had that sense of urgency. Lord, may our hope arrive in something that we do not see. I think I remember reading something in Hebrews about that, that this is the essence of what faith is, that there's a reality we have not seen yet that is coming. And even some of those, those pull back behind the veil glimpses that you give us of that in this world is just nothing compared to the full manifestation of your glory when you split that eastern sky. And may that be our hope today. May people leave with their heads held high, not because their problems necessarily have even been solved or even because they know the way out of whatever it is they're in the middle of right now, but because they know a kingdom is coming and they know they are citizens of that kingdom. Father, we thank you that one day we are going home. We thank you that one day home is coming to us. Lord, make us the most joyous people on the planet as we leave today. And for those that are not ready, may your Holy Spirit dive on them and not leave them alone until they are ready. I pray this in the mighty name of our returning King. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.